All right. Any any dice with? Okay. Cool. Cool. Give it a second here, folks. And uh, let me get my thing open. Checkity check check checkity check. There we go. Okay. Okay. While while we're waiting for things to get going, any missing blanks? Or did I hit them all this morning, Lee? I got them. You got Lee's got them all. Okay. Cool. Anyone else missing a blank? Lee is not the standard of all blanks. Yes, Patrice. Very last one. Crucified. Rejected and crucified. Reject. Dude, 44 verses in five weeks is, is almost 10 verses a week. For what? No. 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 All right. Okay. Blessed are you when all men speak evil of you. Great is your joy in heaven. For so did they persecute the prophets. Okay. (laughs) There you go. Come on, my car doesn't count. Sorry. Okay, sorry. All inside jokes. Done. Questions from this morning. Thoughts, questions? Yes, Renee. First of all, is am I on? Yes. Oh, can, we're working on projecting right, it, but gotcha. you're on for the recording's sake. First of all, can we separate those two women up front? <laughs> <laughs> I urge you to instinct Okay. Okay. Yes, Renee. Okay. Oh dear. Yes. True belief. I have a question. Let me try to yeah. organize my thoughts here. Uh, John four fifty three C. Yep. Uh, the father whose son was healed and yes, he himself believed in his whole household. Was that true belief? I think so. I, okay. I was actually arguing with someone online about that. Um, I think so, primarily because it parallels the disciples' belief in in Cana Galilee in the end of chapter two. And John's stated purpose, many other signs. So people have called John's gospel a book of signs because in John's thesis statement in chapter 20, verses uh, 30 and 31, he says, many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, but these, and the, the, the antecedent of these is signs. These signs have been written that you might believe. So when his first sign is done, Jesus is the first sign Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. His disciples beheld his glory and they believed, okay. right? So that so tightly links into his thesis statement that when he says this now, the second sign he did, and there's faith accompanied with it, I would need strong contextual arguments to say, no, that's not. So I think the rebukes to Galilee in general. If anything, even though he's talking to the nobleman, I think the rebuke is the the presumed crowd that's, oh, he's going to do another miracle, you know, and you guys, you guys won't believe unless you signs and miracles. Um, And I think... John singles out, no, this man and his family believed, and that's, that's good. I, but I was even talking about this in the inter-between services. Because of John's degrees of faith, like, so Nathaniel believes Jesus, and then he sees the water turn to wine, and he believes, right? Um, tracking, when is it saving? I don't, I, John doesn't say that. I mean, Luke will, like, in Acts, he believed, and immediately, you know, so this is, 
John wants to show us different things we can call faith and learn what's true and right about authentic, genuine faith. And then there's a contrast. I think the Samaritans are sitting right in between is that contrast. Greg Rolak was frustrated with me. Go, go to chapter... Th- well, he's regularly frustrated with me. Um, but in particular, because at the end of chapter 3, he thought the point I was making... Remember I made the point that Jesus' rebuke or his chastisement to Nicodemus is, you, you guys don't receive my testimony and believe me. Well, right before we started this, at the end of chapter 3, that same point is, is hammered again. So if, to further emphasize the point that the real issue is at stake here is, will you receive and believe what Jesus has to say? Or were you excited about him for some other reason? And so at the end of chapter 3, and he came up to me, he's like, why didn't you say this? I'm like, I didn't think of it, Greg. Thanks for telling me now, you know. Um, 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. For you God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into the hand of the Son. Whoever believes in the Son is eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. For the wrath of God remains on him. And again, this is put in context of who is going to receive and believe what Jesus says. Um, and we're going to see clearly the Galileans, by the end of 6, are not in that category. They don't like what he has to say and they go home, by and large. And already, that's foreshadowed here when Jesus says, you guys, you guys just don't believe unless you see signs and miracles. So like, John's going to tease that out. The contrast is with the Samaritans. Where the emphasis is on Jesus' word and what they heard. So John gives us the links. Why, why were they so impacted? Why were they um, so convinced? Because of Jesus' word. And they're looking for a Messiah who's going to tell us all things. So already, the emphasis is on these are people receiving Jesus' teaching. And that's the contrast between what's come before and what's come after. So does that? Yes. Okay. Thank you. No, no. I do have another question. Go for if it. If I'm no, allowed. Go for it. Go for it. Um, yeah. To be two, I think the blank is Jesus is Savior for all people. Is that correct? Bingo. Okay. So that means Jesus died on the cross for every single human being in the whole wide no, world? No, it's plural. Peoples. Ah. All peoples. Okay. I'm not diving into the limited unlimited atonement here. Oh, okay. I mean, I can. If we get bored, I can. But, but I wasn't intending to. Oh, that's all right. You don't have to, but I am curious. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I was intentionally leaving the blank, so I wasn't okay. committing to that. Yeah, yeah. But, but no, let me pause. Whatever you take, um, Jesus is Savior for all. There's one Savior for all people. Every, there's a Savior you can offer to every individual person on the planet. And there's one, and it's Jesus, and you can legitimately offer Jesus to everyone. So there is a Savior for every man, woman, and child, by which I mean there is someone you can point them to. The debate is, okay, well, how much saving did he— Okay, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll pause that unless we get really bored. But, um, yeah. Any other questions or thoughts? Or we get that bored? So I got a, I got a question. Did did my explanation of those two conjunctions at the end of this make sense? Because I I was I thought it was really interesting what John was doing that for and the so, um, and and did you buy my explanation? Questions about that? Because like I said, the NIV just lops it off. They get rid of them. They just you know this is complicated, so they just chop it off. Um, and uh, they're absolutely there in the Greek. 
so John is communicating something, and so the, then the challenge is, what is he communicating? Well, see, now it doesn't change causality. It's, it could just be a new topic. But, but the key is four. It's telling you why he left. Now doesn't, does not coordinate. So coordinating conjunctions coordinates two statements. Jesus left. Jesus said something. And how do they coordinate? Yours just gives a temporal coordination. Now, Jesus had said before he did this, he did this other thing. The Greek is literally making it clear. Because of this, this. Why did he leave? Because. Haughty, that sense because. Um, so that's my complaint, sorry. Um, every translation makes mistakes here and there. I'm not picking on the NIV exclusively. But no, the, 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 the causal relationship is, is undeniable. Is, yes, there's no debate over that, it, what the word means. It's just because I think most of the translations that do it, it doesn't seem immediately intuitive. Why is he leaving? How does he himself have testified, a prophet's not without honor except his hometown, how is that given as the reason why he's leaving? And why does it then say, so the Galileans welcomed him? How does that all fit together? Yeah. Right. No, no. Which I think is a profound point, which then I get frustrated if it gets dropped out because it's complicated. Um, I mean, it's not complicated in English. It's just complicated logic. The NIV likes to smooth things out. It's a good translation, but the NIV likes to smooth things out. And this is one of the things, like, please don't. There's another one they do in 11. Oh, my goodness. In 11, um, the big issue. Like, what's the question, Mary? So 11 is um, when, uh, just, I'll go, let's go to 11 briefly, because I want to show you that John does this type of thing. This isn't the only place I think he's being subtle. In John 11, right? What's the big dilemma for Mary and Martha when they meet Jesus after Lazarus has died? What do they say? The implied question, Lord, if you've been here, why did you delay? Why does Jesus delay? They, as soon as Lazarus gets sick, they send for Jesus. If, as soon as Jesus learns about this, he'll come and he'll save our brother, right? John 11, critical, critical little, um, little thing. Verse 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Does your Bible say so in the next? It better. <laughs> no, they put an antonym in. They put an antonym in. So is a coordinated conjunction, causal, yet is contrast in spite of this, this. And I get why they did it. It doesn't jump off the page intuitively. But what John's saying is Jesus' love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is the cause of his delay. And I think he intends for us to go, well, how does that work? How does that work? I think that's entirely the point. And so it's, we'll get to it. I won't try to solve it now. But my point is John, John's setting things up like this, just like the end of chapter 2. Um, is, is the type of thing John does. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two more days. John's letting us know that whatever this is, he doesn't explain how yet. Love for them is the cause of his delay. And then I think as you work through the passage, you're, he, he, John's not stupid. He gets the dilemma. He puts it in the mouths of Mary and Martha. I mean, he doesn't put it there. It is there, but he shows it to us in their mouth. He, they voice the question we should all, well, wait a second, if you loved him, why'd you wait? And when we get to John 11, we'll figure out why. Um, anyway, back to chapter four. But my point in highlighting that is John regularly, I want to show this is, I'm not, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. John uses these types of subtleties in his writing. So I, I think it's fair to try to unpack what he's saying here. And that, his grammar, 
makes it clear this is the cause of this, then you have to explain how is the saying that he said the cause or the explanation for why he didn't stay longer in Sychar. And I think the reason is because you guys aren't going to dishonor me and I need to be crucified. Like that's my father's work includes my crucifixion, so I got to go. Which you can imagine as a Jew reading this later, like <laughs> you want to get crucified, you got to go to Israel. Ain't going to happen here with these Samaritans. And it's not that every Samaritan town loved Jesus. We know in Luke uh, 8 or 9, um, when he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, he goes to the Samaritan town, and they don't like him because they knew he was going to Jerusalem. Because remember, the whole issue is do we worship here in Jerusalem. So this isn't some blanket the Samaritans all believe in Jesus. This Samaritan town does. This Samaritan town does. Um, okay, questions, thoughts on any of that? Microphone, our five faithful listeners, our five faithful listeners want to hear your question, your statement. So uh, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. They welcomed, welcomed him then, oh, yeah. and then what happened? So it's kind of the same scenario yeah. in, in one sense, Yeah, seems like. Well, what's, so what's interesting here at the end of, uh, at the end of, at the end of, our text this morning is you get, so I've talked before about what's called uh, literary bookends, what's called inclusio. It's, it's just a literary feature. It's not unique to scripture. An author bookends something with a similar statement, and it helps you identify Markov chunks. So in John's gospel, if you wanted to use a really broad brushstrokes, a three-part outline, chapters one through 12, Jesus' public ministry. Jesus going about primarily in public, doing things in public. And it takes about three or four years, depending on whether or not 5-1 is a, is a, a Passover or not. Uh, if 5-1, if the unnamed feast is a Passover, then it's a four-year ministry. If it's not, it's a three-year ministry. So three or four years, okay? Then starting in 13 is entirely Jesus' ministry to the disciples in the upper room on the night before the crucifixion, 3-17. to 17. And, then it, and then walking out, praying on the garden, and so that's 3 to 17 is Jesus' private ministry, just him and his disciples, and then finally him praying privately three or four hours, just to help give you a handle. And then 18 to 21 is Jesus' passion, his death, burial, resurrection, post-resurrection appearances, and given the post-resurrection appearances, three or four weeks. So if you want a real, really simple handle, 1 to 12 is public, three or four years, 13 to 17 is private, three or four hours, and then 18 to 21 is passion, three or four weeks ish right but zeroing into that first chunk one to 12 is the cana cycle and the feast cycle and so this is the bookend that locks the cana cycle so that it starts with the it starts with go back to chapter two after the wedding at the wedding at cana and the water turned into wine we get verse 11 this is the first of his signs that jesus did at cana in galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And the second time you read John's gospel and you've read his purpose statement, you should light up and say, oh, wow, this links in with that purpose statement. Many other signs Jesus did, but these have been written that you might believe. This is the first sign. And oh, look, his disciples believed. Whoa, right? And, and so then when you get a similar statement here in verse 54, this now the second sign Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee, linked also in with the inner brackets of 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. 
This is all sandwiched material. The miracles Jesus did in Jerusalem at the feast are what are ringing over this whole thing. The, the outcome of, of Nicodemus coming. He's on his way up to Galilee. So that's, that's, this is the chunk that some, some commentators call the Cana cycle. And then starting in 5, it's all directed around the feasts. So 5.1, you have the Feast of the Jews. We're not sure which feast that is. Then in chapter, um, where is it? Where's the next feast? Is it uh, 6.4? Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, is at hand. 7 is the Feast of um, Tabernacles, which is intense. All right. Um, Okay. Uh, and uh, okay. Um, and then is that the last feast? Because I think seven and eight is the feast of booths. And then the man born blind and the good shepherd. And then he's approaching his final Passover. So the f- Jewish feasts feature prominently in the next section. What's going to dominate the next section is a pattern starting in five. You get patterns. So in five, you get this pattern that shows them five, six, and nine. Jesus does a sign, and then Jesus does a lot of talking to explain the significance of the sign. Discourse. So sign, discourse. Sign, discourse. So in five, he heals the man by the pool, and he picks a fight with the Pharisees, and then from 519... All the way down to the end of the chapter is Jesus talking. The discourse that follows. The I and the Father are one discourse. Then in 6, he feeds the 5,000 and the people cross the sea. They come and they say, hey, uh, what brings you here, Jesus? Um, these people are... When I talk about how like the, the faith that comes because of miracles gets... So yeah, uh, but look at verse 20. I love this. Look at 6.22. On the next day, the crowd remained that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat and that Jesus had not entered the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats, went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you fancy meeting you here, Jesus? Right? They've been looking for him. And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me. Not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the bread and the loaves. And then he calls on them to do the work of God, which is believe in the one whom they've sent. Um, and then they have the boldness to say in verse 30, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? This, John has gone at great pains. These are the same people who were there yesterday. And they got an additional implied sign because they know Jesus didn't get in the boat. They know there was only one boat. What's the implication? However he got here was supernatural. They don't may not know he walked on water, but they know he didn't get in the boat, and they know there's only one boat. And these people have the audacity to say, okay, what sign are you going to do? And then, because Jesus isn't apparently picking up quickly enough for them, they're going to make a suggestion. Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Hint, hint, that bread thing you did yesterday. No, I mean, these people are terrible. <laughs> and John is highlighting to show what's wrong with a faith that demands signs. It's not that there are people who, who believe and signs and miracles can strengthen their faith. What we're seeing here is there's a danger of a faith that says, if you keep giving me signs, I'll keep believing. And that, that's the problem. And that's really clearly evidenced here, which is why Jesus starts bringing out some hard teaching. And you get... 
Um, you get, like, in 41, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Um, he starts bringing out some of his strongest teaching about predestination and election. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Verse 65, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's granted by my Father. And then when we see that the, the disciples leave, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. These people who are also, and these are the people who in the middle of six want to make Jesus king. Leave. Because he doesn't feed him again, and he says some hard things, which gets back to the emphasis in three. What are you going to do with what Jesus says? Are you going to receive what he says, or are you going to get excited for some other reason? So Jesus turns to the disciples. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. I don't think he understands what Jesus just said. He is convinced you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God, which is awfully similar to what the Samaritans say. Good for them. Okay. So we're in John's Gospel, closing out the first chunk, the ministry in Canaan and Galilee. We're about to start in chapter 5, the, uh, the, the feasts of Jerusalem and feasts of Israel. And then we get these miracle discourse. We, so you get the feeding of the 5,000, then you get the on the bread of life discourse. In chapter 9, he heals the man born blind. And now the pattern shifts. We get sign... Discourse among the Pharisees. You get their discussion with the man. They interrogate this man born blind, right? And their, their opposition to Jesus increases and his faith increases. And eventually they de-synagogue him. And then Jesus finds the man. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so in, in 933, if he says he gets to his, his peak of faith, if this man were not from God. He could not do anything. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard they'd cast him out, and having found him, said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He said to him, you have seen him, and as he was speaking to you, and he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So Jesus takes this man, completes the harvest, and then he turns guns blazing on the Pharisees. And I think this is like the worst chapter division placed in the Bible, um, it's terrible because if you've got one of those red letter Bibles, the red letters don't stop at the end of chapter nine and they just keep going right through what Jesus is saying at the end of nine goes right through into 10. I'm pretty sure I knew, I know why the chapter division was put there. Jesus twice uses good shepherd imagery in chapter 10. And so I think somebody thought, Oh, let's just block that off as good, as good shepherd stuff. But look at the, look at 10 21 others said, these are not the words of someone who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Which lets us know we're still dealing with a man born blind. Put the chapter division there. 22, at the time of the Feast of Dedication. Oh yeah, there's another feast. At the time of the Feast of Dedication. So, a great place for chapter division would have been between 1021 and 1022. Because the, the, the break in the flow of, of the pattern is significant. Normally it's sign, discourse. You get sign, Let's see what the Pharisees do with this guy. And then I am the good shepherd discourse. The good shepherd has something to say to the bad shepherds. And we were shown some of the bad shepherding they did when they kicked this guy out of the synagogue and cursed him. And you get some inclination for why Jesus is angry at them. I mean, look at him. I can just picture the anger. He says in 9, um, 39, for judgment I came into this world, that those who 
do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now you say we see your guilt remains. Truly, and then he just goes in. He talks about hirelings and real shepherds and cowards and wolves. and Yeah, we, we, we see the contrast between the true shepherd and the would-be shepherds. Um, anyway, so that's, that's what's going to dominate starting in 5, the next section. And then, then 11 is going to culminate with the greatest miracle pr- prior to the resurrection, which is Lazarus' resurrection. And that's going to that's galvanize his opponents, and they're going to put a hit out on him and on Lazarus. They're going to seek to put Lazarus to death. That's got to be a bummer. We've just been brought back to life to find out people are trying to kill you. That's what happened with Lazarus. That's what happened. Um, and then... 12 is the transition, the summary, and then we get into Jesus' private ministry. So that's, so took 10 to 15 minutes, but that in a meta view is like how John's gospel is moving. So we're coming to the close of the Cana cycle. And we're starting to see what's wrong with their weak faith, with their, what's, what's, maybe not wrong, what is lacking, what is insufficient, what's hollow about their welcome and their faith. Okay, all that was a long, um, a long sort of explanation trying to fit this into the book, but that's, that's where we're going. Any other thoughts, questions, complaints? Jake! Oh, sorry, I thought you had something. <laughs> yeah. We got in late, so you may have already talked about this, um, but I thought it was neat seeing the difference between the Samaritans believing because of his word versus the others unbelieving with signs. Yeah. And when you were going through just now, in uh, 660, um, Jesus, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And yeah. then he no, goes no, on we, further. John, no, no, that's more to the point. John makes it critically clear. They reject, they don't receive Jesus' word. This is the prophet. You listen to him. They're hard. Who can listen? To, no, no. If the attentive reader's picking up, like, oh, they aren't listening to the prophet God raised up, are they? These people who wanted them. I mean, that's what's terrifying is why does Jesus leave them? He withdraws at the end. Look at 615. Perceiving then that they're about to come and take him by force and make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. In one sense, their enthusiasm for Jesus was, I mean, this is what you got to factor in. These people are passionate it's not some passive languishing or oh, whatever. It's just insufficient and wrongly motivated. Why do they want to make Jesus king? You've heard the expression, an army marches on his f- stomach, right? Here's a king who can feed you every day. Um, here's a king, given the other gospel accounts of him resurrection, if you get wounded in battle, you can heal. I mean, like, they're ready for him to go take on Rome, and they'll march behind this guy. Let's go. Let's, Jesus and his miracle catering, let's go. Take on Rome. And Jesus, does, he is king, but he's not that type of king. And he knows they misunderstand what type of king he is. And so he withdraws. And then when they follow him, he starts bringing out some hard teaching to show. I mean, this is what's, it is loving of Jesus to say hard things to show them their unbelief. Jesus knows all men in chapter two. He knows what's in men. He knows this crowd is not receiving his word. So if you wonder, well, why would Jesus say such challenging teaching? Why would he bring out election and predestination? Why would he bring out depravity? Why would he say things? You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood when he knew some of them were going to misunderstand him. 
because he already knew they were falling for the wrong reasons. So it's better for them. It's kinder for them to go home, stop pretending they're Jesus followers. That was a hard saying. At least now they know they're not disciples of Jesus. Then rah, rah, make Jesus king for king and country misguidedly. That is love. He's not a tame lion, as C.S. Lewis was wont to say. So, no, I mean, that's part of what we got to factor in, you know. Um, and we can see both. We can see the gentleness with the woman at the well, and we can see him in six, just sending him away in droves. Just, just. And then he doesn't even turn to the disciples. If I were one of the disciples, I'd think, well, Jesus say, hey, thanks for sticking with me. You guys want to go home too? I mean, unapologetic. It's Jesus. Okay. Other thoughts, questions, complaints? Seriously. Okay. So let's talk about witnessing then. Um, probably the most common reason why people don't, well, not, there's probably multiple reasons. Um, a common reason why people don't share their faith, people don't witness, is that I get is they're afraid of being asked questions they don't have answers to. They're afraid of looking stupid. They're afraid of, uh, of being stumped. Or they're afraid of being called a hypocrite. This woman serves as an example that none of that is relevant. You, you can be, it's okay to say, I don't know. I forget who. Somebody just recently commended me. They were listening to a podcast, and I said I didn't know to a question. Like, I really liked that. I forgot who it was. Was it you? No, somebody. <laughs> somebody, somebody was encouraged. So I said, I don't know. That's okay. Someone can ask you a question, and you can be like, I don't know. And that's okay. Now, now we are told to study to show yourselves approved to workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. There is a sense in which if, if your ignorance is due to your apathy and your lack of diligence, there is a sense of shame, sure. This isn't licensed to like know nothing, study nothing, just go out. But this woman knows very little. She talked to Jesus for like five minutes or less. And yet she takes what she's got and she excitedly goes and points people to Jesus. And John highlights her results. They believed because of what she said. And then he just quotes it again, lest we think, well, maybe she said a whole bunch more. Nope. He just quotes, come see a man who told me everything I know, everything I did. Yep. She's going to get, and with what Jesus said, she's going to, she's going to get a reward. The one who harvests will receive a reward. And so, yeah, it's turn, turn to first Corinthians two. I had this as a reference in the notes, but um, I didn't think there was time to go here. Mm. The Apostle Paul speaks about his evangelism that was the foundation of the church at Corinth. And he says this. Chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now it's with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith not, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul did not have a lot of eloquence when he spoke. Maybe he was stuttering. Maybe he was trembling. Who knows? We know the contrast is Apollos, who has wise words. We know from 
acts. He's a powerful speaker with rhetorical skills. And that's great for Apollos. Paul doesn't have a problem with that. He has a problem with the Corinthians who are like, we want that, not Paul. That's his problem. And so he reminds them about how weak and how unadorned his speech was when he came. So Paul just shows up as some Jewish Pharisee. He's not a very powerful speaker. He's trembling. He's got weakness. And God planted the church through that. Right? So he's trying to remind them, you guys didn't get wand to faith. You didn't become Christians because I had this, you know, great rhetorical outline with alliterated points. And you know, he's like, dude, guys, I was trembling and weakness and and not with wise words. And that's after he reminds them back in 26 of chapter one, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And that's intentional. What Paul brings forward here is God's purpose in that. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So, so what you and I are tempted to consider as what disqualifies us from witnessing our smallness, our obscurity, our standing, is precisely the very thing that may, God may be pleased to use to bring down the wise. It's uncommon for God to use wise, not many. Thankfully, it's not, not any, but not many, few. Most commonly, God's using the, the, those deemed stupid, those deemed foolish, those viewed as nothing and despised, so that he gets the glory, and it's clear it's his word, his spirit, not someone's eloquence. So I would encourage you to flip that back. If you say, well, I don't know enough, or I'm too, what, like, that might be, that would give me encouragement. Maybe God's going to use you. If you start thinking you're all that in a bag of chips and you got it together, then I'd be more worried. Thoughts, questions? Come on. Anything? Anybody? I got a full class and no one has a thought. Oh, JP. Okay, thanks, JP. We're pals. Thank you. So why do you think that this passage is in John and not like Matthew? Because Matthew is trying to emphasize Messiahship. Why not include one of the clearest declarations of Christ's Messiahship? I don't know. Possibly because Matthew wasn't here for this. Everything that's happening is prior to Jesus' public ministry in all the Gospels. Everything. Because so, John's already... No, no. So, in, so I, would, I would synchronize. So at the, end, at the beginning of 4, when he's heading up to Galilee, that's where Mark's Gospel begins. In 117 and 18, when Jesus learned that John was arrested, he moved into Galilee. So this move into Galilee, I would take to be the same move into Galilee that Mark starts with. So Matthew may not have been a disciple yet. Now, John, probably the unnamed disciple, may have been close enough when he got back to the well to hear what was going on or maybe talk to Jesus about it later. I mean, even though they drop out of the narrative, they're there for those two days. And so they may have picked up on it. But Matthew may not even be a disciple yet. Right? Um, so that, that's part of it. It's, it's no fair question. Why do they not mention the resurrection of Lazarus? That's a better question. They all had to be aware of that one. I don't know. Good, it's a good question, but no. This all the events up to this point, 
are prior to Jesus' ministries in the other Gospels. Um, I mean, so this is an interesting window. Everything Jesus has done is in between his baptism, and being, in between his temptation, and entering into Galilee to start his ministry. We're, li- we're in this window that he's given us at the end of three. This was before John was arrested. Because that's the event that links the start of Jesus' ministry in the other Gospels. So John's aware. So that shows John's aware of them, and he's helping us place it. But this is before anything Jesus does after his temptation in the other Gospels. Okay. Any other questions? Jonah. Okay, so I read in one of Paul's letters that he delights in sharing the gospel. Yes. How do we get that delight, that joy? That's a good question. Um, let me, uh, let's go to one, he probably says this a number of places. Let's go to Romans 1. Romans 1, 16 and 17. You may have another passage in mind, but this one jumps out at me. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul delights in the gospel and is unashamed of the gospel because, first of all, it's powerful. Second of all, it reveals God's righteousness. And when he says that, this was Luther's big aha moment. He'd originally read it as though the gospel reveals how righteous God is. He's a very, very righteous God. And he is. But Paul understood this ultimately, finally, to mean, I mean, not Paul, sorry, Luther, a righteousness that God gives, um, a righteousness that God transfers you want to use a technical term, a forensic righteousness, a legal righteousness. If you turn to chapter 3, um, that's the point he makes in verse 26, that he might be just and justifier. The word just is the same, the Greek word diakaiosune. Um, we don't have an English word righteousify. But it's just and righteous. It's the same Greek word behind it. Um, so if I can, and Paul likes making up words. So if I could make it up to make the connection. The gospel reveals God's righteousness, that he might be righteous and the righteous of fire of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's, that's what's going on behind this in the Greek. So it's not just the gospel revealing that God does righteously, that God does what's right, God does what's true, God does what's holy. But the gospel reveals a righteousness that God gives. He righteousifies, to make up a word. Um, okay. I'm just trying, to, just trying to make the connection with the thesis. Justifies is a nice word, but you don't make the connection between the righteousness of God and justify. I'm trying to, I'm just saying it to make the connection. If Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
Luther and, the, and what the Catholic Church was teaching up to that point, Luther's point is, yeah, God's really holy. The gospel tells you about how just how holy God is. And he t- talks, and you can read about this in his, um, in his introduction to the Psalms, where he talks about how the righteousness of God made him tremble. He didn't delight in it, didn't think it was lovely. It's bad. I mean, Paul Washer said this. The, ba- the worst news in the world is that God's holy if you're sinful. That's the worst news in the world. If that's all the news there is. And Luther talks about how he just did not find it delightful at all until it clicked. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God and righteousness that he offers, a righteousness that he gives, a righteousness that he he transfers and credits to you. Um, The language in Romans is is, is accounting language. Um, Credited. How is it accounted or credited? Um, And so that's where we get the notion of forensic or legal declared righteousness. Um, so back, back to your question. So why, how do you do light in the gospel? One, you've got to be convinced this is the only message. There's not any self-help message. And you've got to be convinced God uses the foolishness of the word preached. Uh, that, that's really, I mean, we've got an old book. The newest parts of these books are 2,000 years old. And some parts are like 3,000 or so years old. Um, we've got an old book. It's not been updated. We got a book that many parts of it really, really, really um, conflict with the wisdom of the age, the ethics of the age, um, and we've got an exclusive message about a Messiah who came to an obscure people two thousand years ago in the Middle East. He didn't go to the enlightened Chinese. He, I mean, there's a lot, and we believe this is how God has saved. This is how we believe God has furnished a means of salvation. And, yeah, Paul's not ashamed. So the reasons to be ashamed of are many. If people figure out, I mean, just like the woman asked which mountain, the, the immediate question you're going to get from most people today if they find out you're a Christian is, what's your take on LGBTQ+, and what's your take on abortion, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's just that's the shibboleth of the day. Um, so this, there's a reason you can be ashamed right there. And there's a lot of Christians who are ashamed and therefore toning down what they think about all that stuff. Okay, right? Um, but Paul is convinced the gospel and the gospel alone is God's power for salvation. So I, I think it, it comes down to confidence in the gospel. If you believe the gospel truly is the means of salvation, this message and this message alone, believed and received by faith, saves people, then you're excited about it. If you think there's power in something else, you're going to find it a little embarrassing. You're going to kind of downplay it some. Um, I don't know if that's what you're getting at, Jonah, but that's my middle-sized answer. I won't say it was a short answer, but it, trust me, it wasn't a long one. Okay. Um, I wonder if we could also say that um, to answer or speak to the person's question, should we do it out of obedience first and then pray and ask the Lord to give you, you know, a burden for souls and a joy. Uh, I was just thinking that could be part of the reason that a lot of people do not witness out of Mm. fear. But if we do it out of obedience first, then just a thought. So the question is, should we share our faith and evangelize out of obedience, out of love for people? Which one do you put priority? Is there a bad reason to share your faith? Um, is that kind of what you're getting at, Christina? And, and the answer is 
I think we got biblical examples of both. Jonah clearly only goes and preaches to Nineveh purely out of obedience and not for any love for those people. Because after he's done, he sits on the hillside with a bag of popcorn waiting for the fire show. He sits, on, okay. he sits under a tree with a nice big leaf over him to protect him, and he's waiting for the fire and brimstone to come. And then when God says he's going to spare them, he says, kill me. I knew you were going to spare them. So Jonah does not preach to Nineveh out of any sense of love. So in one sense, if the only reason you open your mouth and speak truth is obedience, okay. Now, I don't know how good that turns out for Jonah. It turned out well for the people of Nineveh, right? No, no. One of the things that's interesting about Jonah is we have no idea how the Jonah receives the Lord's final rebuke. And I tend to think that's meant to then, okay, how are we going to deal with it? But anyway, ideally, we should be like this woman, excited. If, I mean, it gets back to, gets back to really understand what we're dealing with. I, I use the analogy of um, the uh, the monopoly money. If 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 we were playing a game of monopoly and midway through the game, I said, "Hey, I just want to let you know. For every dollar you give your opponent of monopoly money in this game, I'm going to give you a thousand dollar bill." Who here would be like, "So how many? So how many dollars do, do I need to give?" my neighbor you'd just be like hold on you'd be like handing them out right because you'd want the cash jesus talks about a harvest and reaping and a reward and we can bear the news of the gospel and salvation and then we're like so how many people have to talk to we don't get it um we don't get it at all so if if we understood what was what was offered us that we can we i mean go to go to first corinthians 9 Here's here's the here's Paul's heart. First Corinthians nine. So so it, put it simply, Christina, I would not want to fundamentally guilt people into evangelism. Um, although if if you're convicted that you're not talking to your neighbor, I wouldn't work against that. But I would try to. Um, I would try to encourage you to open, like Jesus, open your eyes and see what's going on around you all the time. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, says this. Um, verse 19. For though I'm free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win more of them. Paul's saying, wait, I, I can have a role to play in people's salvation? I want, I want as much of that ball as I can get. To the Jew, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." Then he talks about the runner and the boxer and the training he does. But clearly, there's a sense of greediness in Paul's part. I mean, it's not greedy, but I, I want to win more. I don't want to just I don't want to just place in the race. I want to win the race. Because there's a reward out in front, a carrot that he's really excited about. Um, and so as long as what you want is righteous, be greedy. The problem with greed is when you want idols and lesser things. But be greedy to win the souls. Be greedy to know God. Be greedy to understand his word, if, if greed is an appropriate word. 
Be eager. Be a glutton for Scripture. Right? I mean, Paul is clearly operating out of a sense of reward and desire. He's not, this isn't duty. Well, God did so much for me, I probably should do this. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win as many as I can. Do whatever I got to do. So if that's not where your heart's at, pray and ask that God might, through his word, through, through his spirit, change your heart to have that attitude. That clearly is the best motive to go and share. But if you just share because you're Jonah, well, at least give to the people you're talking to. So, yes, Tim, you got the mic? No. Oh, no. Who's got the mic? Me Christina's again. got it back. Okay, Sorry. Christina. Sorry, and, and yeah, I yeah. think you just said kind of what I was hoping at the end. You said to pray. But I guess I was kind of taught on the sense that it's something that we should desire. As yes. Christians, is that not right? Or No, no, we, we should. It? We should. What, what I'm, it's the same way Paul teaches on giving. Paul will not command giving. He will not guilt people into it. Yet he exhorts people to give. 2 Corinthians 8 is probably the clearest place. So Paul will not say, I mean, he makes it clear, I don't want you to do this by compulsion. I, I, I think similarly, um, the, 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 if you're not excited to share your faith, you're missing, you're blind to something. So in one sense, something is wrong. You're, you're not seeing things properly. Um, so if, if your heart is not passionate about sharing, sharing with your neighbor, talking, or at least I'll get back to being alert. Lord, I want to see, to use Jesus' analogy, I want to see when there are fields ready for harvest. I mean, think of the irony. These, these disciples have just gone into Sychar. They've hobnobbed, they've bought, they've bartered, they've bought food. Those very same people they were just with 20 minutes ago are now coming to them. And they still don't get it. Jesus has got to say, open your eyes, look, behold, the harvest. I mean, I'm sure the disciples might have recognized some of them. That's the guy we got the bread from. I mean, who knows, right? They've interacted with these people already. And it never occurred to them to do any of the stuff they were doing back in Judea where they were baptizing. And so if we're alert and looking for those opportunities, I trust God will give us the wisdom. It's not just... Everywhere you go, every person you meet, I mean, I'm not going to criticize that if that's what you want to do, but that's the, the real challenge is to be alert and aware and ready for opportunities. And I think if you're, if you're there, God and his spirit's going to give you wisdom to know what to say, when to say it, when to say it. But yeah, if you're not alert, you're not being faithful, right? I mean, that's, that's Jesus told parables about that, about a Lord going out and he's going to come back late and some of the slaves were asleep, being alert, being ready. Yeah, that's, that would be, I'd, I'd center our prayers around that, Pristina, whether it's, Lord, am I not really believing this? So I'm ashamed of it, like Paul is insinuating he wasn't, not insinuating, but, or is it that I'm just distracted? I think for me, most often, I'm just distracted by things that aren't wicked, but things that are inferior. Distracted by what I'm going to do this after my family. Distracted with playing a board game. Distracted with... And so I go to the gas station and I pay and I, you know, and I don't even think, could there be a harvest here? I go to, you know, I go to the supermarket and I don't even think, is there anything, any reaping or sowing that could be done? Because like the, like the disciples, ministry's coming up. It's later tonight at the Wana or it's Sunday, you know, and just hobnobbing with ordinary people. But there are no ordinary people. Anyway, um, I think we're at time. So Lample can't get mad at me. Um, can't, see, I, if I let you out early, you guys got to be quiet. 
No, you do. Trust me. Um, anyway, it is that time. So be as loud as you want. God bless. Godspeed. Good day.